everyone. It's nice to be able to add to the welcome Simon gave earlier. If you have your Bible, please turn with me uh, back to Revelation chapter 1. We're looking at verses 4 to 8 this morning. It'll be really helpful to have that open and in front of you as we work down through it together. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is found in Isaiah 33, verses 5 and 6. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness, and he will be the stability of your times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. He will be the stability of your times. You may not have realized it, but every single one of us are looking for something to give us a sense of stability in our inherently unstable world. There is so much going on right now in our world that makes us feel the instability of our world. I'm sure you've felt it. In Northern Ireland, for example, the cost of living crisis rages on. Our NHS has the longest waiting lists uh, from, uh, of, of anywhere in the UK. We have no sitting government at Stormont trying to tackle any of these issues. It's all makes us feel pretty unstable. Internationally, you just extend things out a little bit. Some things that Paddy just prayed about. The war in Ukraine seems entrenched with no sign of ending. The war between Israel and Gaza is described by many reporters as a war that is destabilizing, destabilizing the whole region. But we know there are not just destabilizing events out there in the world, more personally in our own lives. Lots of things can enter in and make us feel pretty unsteady, unstable. Change, for example, any kind of change. Change in a job or change in a season of life can bring with it unknowns. Unknowns can bring anxiety. Or it can be relationship burdens we carry that can bring instability within our hearts. We can be burdened for family members, burdened for our children, burdened for friends or those close to us who are ill. We can have mental health struggles that can create anxiety and fear about the future. We feel instability around us. We feel it within us. And this must have been very similar to how John's first recipients of Revelation must have felt towards the end of the first century. It's very easy in a book like Revelation, amidst all the symbolic visionary images, to forget that this book is a letter written to real people in real places with real hopes, real dreams, and real problems of their own. Instability is a reality in our lives. It certainly would have been a reality at the end of the first century for John's first audience. Though in a relatively quiet part of the Roman Empire in the province of Asia, which is modern-day Western Turkey, the people were subject to the same strains and stresses we are because they lived in the same fallen world that we live in. 
Political instability was a reality at the end of the first century. On the fringes of the Roman Empire, political instability was always a reality. Domitian, the, empire of the emperor of the day, was super pro the Roman traditions and gods. As a Christian, you could get in trouble if you lived your faith out too loudly in that age. Kind of like now. Think, it was the first century of the church. The little churches that had been planted by the apostles and others were young and fragile. And for Christians trying to live out loud for Jesus at the end of the first century, the feeling of instability was never far away. And so what did they need and what do we need whenever we feel our instability in the world keenly? We need to be directed to the place where we can find stability. And that is what the book of Revelation is all about. And that is what the opening section of the letter is here to do. If I was to summarize the few verses we're looking at this morning in a sentence, I would say the main message of Revelation 1, 4 to 8 is this. Oh, lift your eyes to the triune God, for he is your only place of true stability in this unstable world. And I say, lift your eyes to your triune God in that summary statement, because what we'll see in this text is that each of the three persons of the Godhead are individually mentioned as the source of our grace and peace and stability in this world. We're to lift our eyes, not just to God generally, but to each of the persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, to find the stability we need. And that's what we're going to do this morning. We're just going to look at this presentation of the three persons of the Godhead as our source of grace and peace. That is our source of stability in our unstable world. So first, we're directed in the verses to lift our eyes to our eternal, sovereign, and unchanging Father. You want stability? Lift your eyes to the Father. Verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now, as we said last week in the introduction to this book, that this is addressed as a letter to seven churches in Asia is no accident. The number seven throughout the Bible, and indeed throughout the book of Revelation, signifies wholeness or fullness, like there's seven days in a creation week. So this revelation is not just for those seven churches that it was addressed to at the end of the first century. It's for the whole church, the fullness of the church, the universal church down through all ages. Here is what you're going to need to help you persevere in the church in every age. You're going to need grace and peace. Grace. This is God's kindness, his goodness, his favor. 
his active help and provision. Peace. This is that deep level shalom, that wholeness, sense of security and well-being. These are the two things that bring stability in this world. Grace from God, a grace that God promises will be sufficient for us, and peace from God. Those are the two things that bring stability in this unstable world. And this grace and peace, this stability has a source. We're to look to the source to find grace and peace. The first source is named as the one who is and who was and who is to come. This is a reference to God the Father. Notice how both here and when this name is used again in verse 8, we don't read of him who was and who is and who is to come. That would be the more natural chronological way to order that name. No, we read of the one who is and who was and who is to come. The one who is is thrown to the front. That's something you see often in Greek, the original language the book of Revelation was written in, when the author wants to emphasize something. You throw the word to the front of the sentence. So here and in verse 8, we read first that this God is the one who is. Now, as I was saying last week, this reminds us that though the book of Revelation speaks to us of things that have happened in the past, and it speaks to us of their implications for the future, the predominant emphasis throughout the book of Revelation is on how we live now. The one who is. He's with you now. This great name for the Father tells us that our Heavenly Father is both our sovereign Lord over history and our steady constant throughout history and throughout our lives. This name is probably John's way of picking up the divine name Yahweh in the Old Testament. That name God revealed to Moses in Exodus 3, 13 and 14. Do you remember at the burning bush when God revealed himself to Moses and Moses said, Lord, when I go back to my people and tell them that you've met with me, who shall I say you are? What will I tell them your name is? And the Lord said, say this to the people of Israel, I am who I am. I am has sent me to you. The eternal I am reigns sovereign over the beginning of history, the end of history, and everything in between history. In every age, he is the present ruler over all. Now, I just borrowed this slap band from Grace to illustrate this this morning. Um, it's, I, wanted, I said I wanted a blue one or a green one or something, but it's pink, but we'll go with it. It's Grace's, okay? Imagine this is all of history, okay? We're just unfolding all of history. Here's the beginning. Um, this is the God who was there before anything created. God just says, I'm the beginning and I'm the end, and I am in between it all. So imagine this slap band represents all of history. 
the living God, the eternal I am, just stands above and sees the end from the beginning. He sees everything in between and is present throughout as our sovereign constant. Now, I think this is so wonderful because you, like me, can think of all the different changes we go through in this life. Think just now, back over your life to date, of the different places where you've lived. Think of the different relationships you've had, the people that have come into your life and gone out of your life. Think of your, your years at school or uh, education. Think of houses you lived in, countries you lived in. What has brought you to this point right now? Think of all the changes you've had at work amidst family and friends. So much change happens constantly in our lives. But what has been the steady constant that has never changed? Better, who has been the steady constant? Who has never changed? Our Heavenly Father. I remember once I was swimming in strong currents in Madagascar, and the beach that we were on, the landscape just looked exactly the same, no matter what part of the beach you were on. But there was this big, massive rock in a bank. And I used to make that rock my point of reference. Because what would happen is you'd be in the water just enjoying yourself, and, the, and then the currents would pull you way out, uh, way far away from where you should be. But I had this sort of steady constant, this immovable rock. And no matter what happened with the tides, no matter where I went through, I could just keep looking back to this steady, never-changing, constant rock that was there. And that's how I love to think about God throughout all the changes in this life. God is our steady, unchanging rock. The tides of time wax and wane. Circumstances wax and wane. But he is our constant, safe, and secure reference point. I love this. I remember in our lives, we moved house about seven times in the first seven years of our marriage. We lived down near the village on Olympia Street, right in the shadow of Windsor Park. That was our first house as a married couple. Then we moved to Moira to an apartment for a little while. And then we moved to Madagascar, and we lived in a little house in a, a village called Antani Milandi, a mango forest. And then we moved from there to a house in Lisbon that we got for about nine months where Hudson was born. Then we moved to live in a little apartment in Chicago um, when I was studying theology out there. And then we moved from there to Cambridge in England where I was assistant pastor. And then we moved from there to here. And I used to love on the first days in that new house or that new location just kneeling down and saying, Lord, everything's changed. But when I kneel here before you, it's just the same. You're the constant. And it's just wherever I am in the world, wherever I, wherever I am at any season of life, this is stable. Me and you. You and me because of Christ. And that never changes. And that vision of the Father, the one who is, who was, who is to come, that is to give us Stability. Do you remember when Samuel, in the Old Testament, in the midst of his life, raised up this stone? Do you remember what he called it? Ebenezer, rock of help. And he said, till now the Lord has helped us. 
And what he was saying, in a sense, was he was lifting up this stone and he said, God has been our steady rock of help to now. If he's brought us this far, he's not going to abandon us. He's going to see us safely through. He's the rock you look to in the midst of terrible instability. Here's your stable place, the unchanging Father. And what is his posture towards you, to his people? Grace and peace. That is what he has in his hand to give you. And you're going to need to know that in all the changes and unknowns that life brings. You can say, no matter what, his steadfast love will never cease. His mercy will be new tomorrow like it was today. His faithfulness is great. There'll never be a day where a Christian could look back over the day and not say, great is your faithfulness. I find it so reassuring to have this stability from our Heavenly Father in all the chaos of our world and our lives. So lift your eyes to your all-sovereign, eternal, unchanging Father. But second in the passage, we're directed to lift our eyes then to our all-present, empowering Holy Spirit. Next, this grace and peace is extended in the second part of verse 4 from the seven spirits who are before his throne. So it was grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. Now it's grace and peace to you from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now that number seven, as we've already recognized, signifies fullness in the book of Revelation. So you could paraphrase this part of the verse as grace and peace to you from the fullness of the Spirit who is before the throne. John is probably alluding to Zechariah chapter 4 in the Old Testament here, where Zechariah saw a vision of a lampstand with seven lamps, and we're told that the seven lamps represented the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Also in Revelation 4 and 5 that we're going to see in the new year in the great throne room scene, the Father is there, the Lamb is there, signifying Jesus, and we're told of the seven lamps that are burning, which are the seven spirits of God, the Holy Spirit who is sent out into all the earth. This is a picture of the fullness of the Spirit that flows from the Father and the Son and who is given to empower the church of Jesus Christ. In our recent series on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, we listed in one of those sermons all the things the Spirit does for us as he indwells and empowers us. Let me just jog your memory of a few. The Spirit helps us to understand and appreciate all that we have in Christ. The Spirit helps us to treasure Christ. He speaks assurance into our hearts when we're wobbling. He empowers our sanctification. He helps us keep going when we're weak. He grows our character so that we bear the fruit of the Spirit. He empowers our service by giving us gifts. And on Wednesday evening, we thought about all the wonderful gifts the Spirit gives for the good of His church today. He also gives us courage to be a faithful witness when we're feeling intimidated with the rising tide of secularism. And once again, this simple greeting of grace and peace from the Holy Spirit tells us that the Holy Spirit's posture towards us is grace and peace. He comes with grace and peace in his hand, 
and He comes to give it to us. He comes to give us stability. So, this is where we're to lift our eyes now, not just to our all-sovereign, eternal, unchanging, heavenly Father, but we are to lift our eyes to our all-present, empowering Spirit. That is dependence, living in dependence on the Holy Spirit because we will not be able to persevere. We will not find stability if we are not a Spirit-filled people. So let me just ask, are you depending on the Holy Spirit today to keep you going, to get you through? Or is He the forgotten person of the Godhead to you? Well, thirdly now, we are directed after this powerful vision or this fixing our focus on the Father and the Spirit. Now we're directed to lift our eyes to Jesus Christ, our Savior, and our all-conquering King. In verse 5, grace and peace is now extended from Jesus Christ, whom John calls here the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, all of these names are drawn from Psalm 89, where all three names are used for the coming messianic king. We said last week that nearly every part of Revelation alludes to the Old Testament in one way or another. In the book of Revelation, God's people are called steadily to faithfully bear witness to the hope that they have in Jesus Christ, no matter how hard it gets, even in persecution, even if it leads to death. God's people are to bear faithful witness to what they have in Christ. Here, Jesus is named as the ultimate faithful witness who remained faithful unto death. But as we know, he didn't stay dead. He rose, and so John gives him this majestic name, the firstborn from the dead. In Psalm 89, 27, God said of David, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Now, was David the firstborn son in Jesse's family? No, he was the youngest son. The firstborn in the Old Testament and carried over into the New Testament became a technical term to speak of the, the ruler, the head, the one who had all the inheritance rights to the father's house. And so God said, I'm going to make David the firstborn. That is the highest of the kings of the earth. The firstborns, the first the ruler over all the rest. So when Jesus is called the firstborn of the dead, it means he has all authority over death. What king or leader in the world could claim that? I have authority over death. And that is exactly what Jesus will say as we come back to this passage, God willing, next week and see chapter 1, verse 18, when Jesus says, I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death. I have the keys. He is the first step forward in the new creation resurrection. He stands forth 
victorious over death, the author of a new creation people, the church. And he has said he will build his church throughout the nations, and the gates of hell will not prevail against him. And so as John ponders this revelation of Jesus Christ and these three names, faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth, he now just moves into praise. In verse 5, look at what he does as he just announces praise to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now, there's something wonderful about what John does here. This transcendent, holy God is not just a super-powered, robotic, distant being. This Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is the one who loves us. And here specifically, Jesus is spoken of as the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Loved us and freed us from our sins by his blood. Here's how you come to know this stabilizing grace and peace from our triune God. You can know it because of Jesus' death on the cross where he decisively dealt with the problem of our sin that would eternally separate us from that grace and peace in God. This verse five here is probably one of the verses that I preach to myself morning by morning more than any other in the Bible. I love this truth and this analogy that we are, analogy and reality, that we are set free from our sin by Jesus. I imagine morning by morning, I wake up and I go into my study to pray, and I imagine that I'm walking around, I've got this backpack of sin on my shoulders. It weighs down. I just think of my selfishness, my self-centeredness, my lack of prayerfulness, my pride and arrogance and all those things. And just It's here like a heavy backpack that weighs down. It hurts my shoulders. But then if by myself I went to take it off, I would find that I can't take it off because it's chained to me. And so there's no rest. But then I remember Jesus comes to me in the gospel. And he says to me, again, morning by morning, Steve, let me take that. And the moment he touches the strap of the backpack of my sin, the chains are released and he lifts it off me. And I literally feel the weight lifting off and I feel the light refreshment on my shoulders. And I just feel my whole atmosphere change at the start of a new day. And I remember today, God wants me to live in the goodness of that gospel. In the death of Jesus, he takes the backpack of my sin. He buries that backpack in his death, in his tomb. In his resurrection, he defeats sin and death. He leaves it under his feet in the grave. And so the reality for me is, I'll never see that backpack again. 
He's taken it away. And though I continue to sin and struggle, I remember each morning the journey I've been on, the burden of the sin that was there that would have kept me from Christ. He has loved me and freed me from it. And now today again, I go out in the light-shouldered grace of his forgiveness. He loved me and he set me free. Are you living in the goodness of the gospel? Are you enjoying the light-shouldered freedom of forgiveness? Because God wants you to live in the goodness of it. That's why we preach the gospel to ourselves every day. We appropriate again the truth that today I don't walk into this day with a shroud of guilt and condemnation on me. I'm free, free, totally free from sin. It's penalty, it's power, even it's presence. It can't touch me. And here's a lovely aspect that John then adds. He hasn't just loosed us from our sin and then left us to our own devices. He's made us into something, a kingdom, priests who bring glory and honor to the Father forever. Now, this is John saying we are part of the king's royal family. We are adopted into the family line of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In the Son, we are made sons. We are made daughters. We are made family. I often think of this. Imagine the royal family. We, we see it from time to time, don't we? The royal family standing out in the balcony at Buckingham Palace. And you see all the sort of, there's times you see all the extended family there, and we Louis terrorizing his mom as he does his thing. But um, imagine here, this, this pastor is essentially saying, if the triune God were stepping out onto the balcony, he would bring you with him because you're part of the family. Of course, the Father, Son, and the Spirit stand in resplendent, resplendent glory. But there in the background is this family from all tribes and all tongues and all nations. You've been made a kingdom, priests, You've got a mission in the world. And we're part of something that is far bigger than any of us. This far greater reality is ours. That we're part of the royal family. And we are ambassadors for our king in this world. As priests, we have direct access to God. And we are those who serve his purposes and mediate his presence empowered by the Spirit through the church in the world. Then, you'll see in verse 7, this wonderful word of hope where John alludes to Daniel 7 and Zechariah 12 and says, behold. Now, that is the only, how do I put this, grammatical command in this passage. So, you know, when you say, sit, to a dog, and it sits, it's a command. Or you say, come, and it means come in. There's only one grammatical imperative in this whole passage. What is it? At the start there of verse 7, behold. Lift your eyes to and fix, fix your hope right here. Behold, he is coming. He's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes will wail on account of him, even so, amen. 
Here we learn that if we embrace the Son, Jesus Christ, by faith, we will experience grace and peace. But outside of the Son, there is no grace and peace. There is only wailing because of judgment. And so when Jesus returns, we're told here, there will be great hope, grace, and peace for believers. But there will be many who wail because they realize that deep down they always knew there was a God and that He was to be honored. And yet they suppressed the truth because of their ungodliness to go their own way. And they will wail in regret. And after all of this, finally, the climax of the opening address comes with God speaking in verse 8. And because of the name the Lord God being used here, I take this now to be in verse 8, the triune God speaking, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as one. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last one. It is like God saying, I'm the A and the Z, above history, through history, over history, and the A to Z more personally over your life. At the beginning, at the end, and in the middle. Not just God generally, you're God. There when you were born, he stood a steady constant. He had already been there the ancient of days, and he stood there when you came into the world. And at the end of your life when you're going out, he will stand there, your steady, constant, faithful rock, never losing one of his own. And right now in the middle, here for you in all your brokenness, all your anxiety, all your instability, all your worries, all your uncertainties, steady rock. Though everything else could give way under your feet, he will never give way because there's no one more powerful than him. No wave can wash away the rock of ages. And so he says, I'm the Almighty. Here's what you need to know. Recipients of revelation at the beginning of the book. Your God is the sovereign God of history. My purposes will be fulfilled. They will never be thwarted. There's grace and peace here for you. Stability. And it's in me. This is the God we are to lift our eyes to. Our eternal, sovereign, and unchanging Father our all-present, empowering Holy Spirit, and our Savior and all-conquering King, Jesus Christ. He will be the stability of your times, abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. And in closing, I just want to ask, do you know him in this way? There's that one command, verse 7, behold, 
Maybe this morning, it's just that that the Spirit of God wants to quicken to your heart. Behold your God. Maybe you need a fresh vision of the sovereign God in the brokenness and instability of your own life. Or maybe that one thing that you've carried into church this morning that you're really worried about. Maybe this morning the Lord would just want to remind you of His place of stability for you in that worry. There are many things that can bring instability into our lives, but our rock of stability, the Lord, He already knows all about them. Build your life on Him. Lift your eyes to Him this week, tomorrow, in work. When things are hard, remember who's in charge, ultimately. With those destabilizing things we thought of at the beginning, the wars, the cost of living crisis, instability in governance here in Northern Ireland, Remember who the stability of our times is. And remember what this God, remember what his posture is towards you. Grace and love like mighty rivers, pouring incessantly for you. He will give us everything that is needed so that we can live faithful lives in this fallen world. And remember, this is not just general sovereignty out there. This is personal sovereignty over your circumstances today. You know, I feel such a burden just in this moment that there are some of us who need a fresh awakening, a fresh vision of this sovereign God. Maybe you've been drifting, maybe you've been dry, maybe you've fallen far away from God, maybe you've just got out of the way of honoring the Lord. This morning, behold, He's coming with the clouds. You want to be right with him. This morning, just come to him again and say, Lord, help me to lift my eyes to you. Reawaken hope within my soul. In Psalm 138, verse 8, we read, The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for you. He is steady. He's your constant. Don't look around at all the change. Fix your eyes on him, your rugged ancient of days. He's so experienced. He's been through so much as the author of history, the beginning, the end, and everything in between. He's here for you, your steady constant. Will you hope in him? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. What a majestic vision of the triune God to open this book for a beleaguered people at the end of the first century, feeling fragile, feeling unstable, carrying burdens, and the Lord saying, lift your eyes to your triune God, for in him is all the stability you need. And here we are, so many years later, the same burdens, the same cares and anxieties, and yet once again through the living word, we're directed to lift our eyes 
to our sovereign God over history and over our lives and to find again this great steady rock. It's so reassuring, Father, to remember that you're our constant. You'll never shift. You'll never give way. You'll never change your character and stop being what you are to us. Thank you for the wonderful promises that you've made that we can hope in. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So Lord, help us to hope in you. And for perhaps that person or that couple or that group of people who I've been particularly burdened for in this preaching moment this morning, if there's a need for fresh awakening, oh Lord, may they just this morning cry out to you and say, Lord, come afresh. Help me to behold who you are. And not just to walk away unchanged, but to keep this vision of you in my heart. And may this fresh vision of you change everything, we pray. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus, and they would be among those who would wail when Christ returns because of their regret that they didn't turn, oh, I pray just now you'd work by the power of your spirit and awaken faith in them that they would say, I need Jesus, and that they would embrace the one who loved us and can free us from our sins. Oh, Lord, just continue your work among us by the power of your spirit as we respond in song in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we said, the call of this passage is that we would behold the one who's coming, and we're going to sing now, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus.
And now may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine on you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace in Christ Jesus our Lord.